Well, welcome everybody and good morning and good afternoon, depending on where you are in the country. For those in the East, I hope you're having a great lunch. For those in the Far West, I hope you're having a great breakfast and whatever the rest of you are doing in between, we welcome you to Emory Conversations from the Edge, the second uh, edition, the second month. We had a, a great uh, first month and look forward to this conversation from the Edge. This is our uh, 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 number two session. In these sessions, we really seek to address nurse leaders, senior nurse leaders especially, healthcare leaders who can look to push the walls, raise the ceilings of scholarship and leadership and innovation and transformation of healthcare for kind of a radically new post-digital age with uh, solutions that um, are different from the solutions that we've had in the uh, uh, previous ages that we have grown up in and provided leadership. Um, we're really seeking to engage and even challenge past practices, and we want to expose ourselves to new thinking and acting that raises the bar for creating the future of healthcare. And we're thrilled to have you join us again in the dialogue. Um, we also would appreciate uh, if you enjoyed the dialogue and appreciate uh, the sessions that we are doing, that you share that also with your uh, senior leadership colleagues and friends so that they also be may join us and we can take advantage of their insights and sharing in this dialogue. Um, before we draw down, however, I wanna just take a moment if I can um, in my personal commitment to evidence-driven uh, comment. If I could, I'd like to correct an error I made in the last session, a comment related to US nursing unions. Uh, my good friend and colleague, Dr. Tim Cunningham at Emory Healthcare reminded me of my error and I thank him for it. I had kind of a brain vacancy in saying that about 1% of US nurses were in collective bargaining agreements when I when I really meant to say 10% were involved in collective bargaining units. And I wanted to make that correction. The Department of Labor reports that 3.2 million working nurses are out in the world out of 5.1 million total nurses in the US. I did not know that piece of data. They stated that the aggregate of nurses and unions is around 300,000 nurses, which was my uh, reason for saying 10%, but I also need to add that they report that there is 2.1% of U.S. nurses which are in union. I don't know how that mathematically works, but that's what's on the Department of Labor report. So I just wanted to make that clarification. So with that, let's move forward into this session. Let me just share, if I can, for a minute, how our hour works together. Uh, first, we will ask our featured innovative leader, this time, Dr. Sean Clark, to share his or her challenging insight for about 20 to 25 minutes um, and to provoke a uh, response or dialogue uh, from our listeners. And then, uh, since this is a forum for discussion with Dr. Clark for dialogue and sharing, we ask you to participate with us in the next 20 to 25 minutes to either raise questions or provide further insights or challenges, whatever comment you wanna make that adds to the dialogue. And you can do this through putting your comment or questions in the Q&A um, and or even raise your hands um, if you wanna share a voice contribution. We are lucky that we have Dr. Sharon Pappas who is excellent at facilitating our comments and questions and will handle that for us as you share them. Um, at the end of your comment period, Dr. Pappas will then turn our session over to Dean Linda McCauley for some final thoughts and from closure for uh, uh, to our hour together. Um, 
with that, let's get started. Our guest today, and we're very fortunate to have him available, is Dr. Sean, Sean Clark. And uh, as you all know already, he has an extensive history of nursing leadership that itself could take an hour to explore. But in the interest of providing as much time as possible for his message to us, um, let me just share a brief summary of his career and contributions. Um, Dr. Sean Clark has been a nurse for 30 years and an academic for 25 of those 30 years, and in the last five years has served as executive vice dean at New York University Myers College of Nursing, where he is responsible for faculty affairs, strategic planning, at one of the largest private university nursing schools in the country. He holds an endowed chair there in nursing leadership named for Ursula Springer, a legend in scholarly publishing and nursing. Um, Dr. Clark was born and raised in Canada. Uh, he finished his education at the University of Pennsylvania, where he eventually joined the faculty, and from there went on to hold a number of faculty research, health system partnerships, and academic administration roles in both Canada and the U.S. before settling professionally in New York. He's been involved in the workforce and safety research and has written about professional issues in nursing for just over two decades. He is completing his first year as editor-in-chief of Nursing Outlook, a journal he actually started reading before he even entered nursing school. As a byproduct of his many collaborations nationally and abroad, he jokingly refers to himself as the Kevin Bacon of academic nursing because he believes that he's linked to pretty much everyone else in academic end of profession by much fewer than six degrees of separation. As a boy, he first wanted to be a chemist and then a psychologist when he grew up, but he's infinitely happy he got the best of both worlds and then some by becoming a nurse and a nurse academic. The idea grew on his parents over time. He and his wife, who is also a nurse academic, as well as a wound care specialist and home health educator in nursing, have a daughter who just finished graduate school in mental health counseling and started practice this spring. And they are holding out hope that their son may end up following in their footsteps into nursing next year after five years in the US Navy as a medic. With that, I am very thrilled to now introduce and turn it over to Dr. Sharn Clark. Welcome. Thank you so much for the kind introduction, Tim. And I am tremendously honored to be here. And uh, this morning, what I'd like to do in terms of provoking and perhaps pushing at some walls is to go back to an idea or a concept that um, I think is an organizing principle for a lot of the ways that I think about where we've come from in the future in nursing as a profession, um, a concept that maybe those of you who are uh, 10 to 15 years uh, in nursing might not have seen so much of because emphasized it as much, but I think it's um, a valuable one nonetheless. And I think it has some important consequences for how we look provokingly at what the future might look like. So this question is, is nursing a profession? Um, and, and it's a question with rippling consequences. Um, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of this debate and what the future um, might look like and why we should be using a definition of professions, perhaps to think about where we're going next. And I'm going to give you a little bit of perspective from some of my editorials in my first year um, as editor-in-chief in at, at Nursing Outlook. But I, I hope from there we're going to have a nice open dialogue about where some of these thoughts go. 
So, of course, when we think about profession and we distinguish a profession from an occupation or from an avocation or a hobby, um, we're sort of making some qualitative distinctions in terms of work and, and how we do it and what it means. A profession defines the relationship of a specific occupation to society, how we get into it, how it's regulated, legal duties and obligations, and the relationship of members to each other. And many of us who got our educations more than a decade ago, perhaps 20 years ago, we, when we study professional issues, we were provided with sociological definitions of professions and a rather classic one um, cobbled together from Talcott Parsons, the, the great sociologist, um, was that a profession classically has six ingredients, um, including a commitment on a, uh, among a group of workers to serve the interests of society and, and, and the client's specifically society in general, a body of knowledge or special, a body of theory or special knowledge with its own principles of growth and, and organization and reorganization over time, a specialized set of professional skills and practices and performances unique to the profession, a developed capacity to render judgments with intense conditions of uncertainty, an organized approach to from experience and a professional community responsible for oversight. And many of us who were taught this model we were taught to use it as a checklist and um, people from outside our profession, some sociologists, some people in other professions would decide whether nursing satisfied different conditions. So if we go back to the list, the commitment to serve the interests of clients in general and society, clients uh, in particular in society in general, that one we get a great big tick for in that box. But the body of theory or special knowledge, people would start to debate with its own principles that belongs to the discipline because people would talk about the quote unquote borrowing of um, the base, the knowledge base for nursing. Um, people would talk about the overlap between medicine, for instance, and nursing in terms of number three. Um, they and and, and um, they would look at, for instance, um, um, the the, the number six, the professional community responsible for oversight, and they would make reference perhaps to um, the lack of unity um, within the profession regarding uh, perspectives on uh, what the ideal form of entry um, education to practice was, for instance. And inevitably, the conclusion of the discussion in professional issues classes was that nursing still has a way to go. So one of my very favorite articles of all time is from 1986, and that's why in the introduction we talked about having my having read the journal or articles in the journal for a long, long time by um, a scholar, Margaret Parsons, who was in fact one of the interim deans of the Woodruff School of Nursing at Emory. And this is a wonderful piece, and it's actually a little bit difficult to track down, so uh, just Want to, uh, if, if you want to send me a message, if you're having trouble tracking this down on your databases, I will be delighted to send you a copy. It's a great, really well-written article. And Parsons herself, I think today, if she was in um, uh, active professionally, she would be among the folks having conversations from the edge with us all because she was decidedly um, ahead of her time and provocative in the statements that she made. So she took sociological definitions of the profession and she said some pretty provocative things. By accepting other American professions as its standard, nursing has deprived itself of its unique identity. Going back to Flexner and Flexner's judgments on the quality, the characteristics of professions, she said uh, she defined 
um, the the Flexner Flexner scholarship about social work and about nursing. Um, and she said that uh, prior to Flexner, American nurses were pretty much on track to um, in terms of their identity as professionals, um, even though they were still divided. And we're talking the early part of the 20th century in their opinions about um, the entry to practice. Um, she said today's nurses have only begun to understand their pre-conscious shaping by sex historical and sociological traditions. We could move the commas around, but I'm doing direct quotes. Um, she talks about the university as the definer of um, whether an occupation is considered a profession or not. And she makes this showstopper statement in the last paragraph of her essay, vulnerable because of its own internal struggle over educational profession, uh, preparation, pardon me. The profession fell prey to sociological hucksters proposing a single route to occupational credibility that if we could only tick more of the boxes that we would finally achieve professional status and it's an interesting thing that this model sort of dominated for so long the way we thought about our movement, our evolution as a profession. And I think we need to ask whether this definition, um, uh, Dr. Parsons was, was encouraging us to think this way a number of decades ago, but I think we need to keep asking whether or not classic definitions of professions that limit to, to some of the quote unquote originals, the like law and medicine and the clergy is the classic examples, whether this definition of profession really works for us today. So, we are, of course, a profession that interacts with many areas of society, and we and and we have influences from other areas of society on how we do our business. And I'm just going to throw out a bunch of social forces that have influenced the way we've moved forward and thought changed how we thought about our ambitions. I th we we start with you know system imperative for a steady supply of nurses in the healthcare system and to manage them for maximal stability and, and optimal margins for the other stakeholders in healthcare. And I think we've seen over time when we look at other professions and we look at some of the discontent we're seeing in the medical profession, or we see some of the issues going on in our, our uh, sibling professions, pharmacy, the rehab professions, and so forth. We see this dynamic going on, supply, demand, and the, how we manage this labor force and how we manage the workers within them. We, have, of course, have to think about trends related to women in higher education. Parsons takes a lot of time to talk about um, the pre-Flexner era and the early days of professions in American society and talks about um, the Seneca Falls um, Conference, uh, women's rights, pushing for um, women's suffrage, um, the, the right to own property, and the right to have professional standing. Because in the late 1800s in this country, women didn't have access to professions. And of course, nursing has been a profession that has welcomed millions upon millions of women over time. The whole business of the growth of higher education in the U.S. over time and how as women entered higher education, the kinds of things that they studied and the idea that nursing could attain a higher stat standard and status if it, it moved into um, universities and colleges offering four-year degrees. And of course, the emergence of the community and junior college as a vehicle for social mobility within the higher ed system and the way nursing eventually jumped onto this wagon and thus nursing students at various levels became big clients of the overall higher education system.
our complex relationship to medicine as a profession, not to mention many, many others, um, our drive to develop theories and conceptual models and frameworks and taxonomies of practice, the the nursing, um, the, the lexicons of diagnoses and outcomes and interventions, and of course, the development and the evolution of nursing science and the growth of research in schools of nursing has very close ties. All of these forces were interacting and either driving or or being driven by various uh, these these various forces and where we are today. And as a result, we wind up with a whole bunch of issues that have persisted. And I jokingly talk about issues that can get a fist fight started in a room of nurses, even in 2023. The entry uh, to practice issue, associate degrees versus bachelor's or even higher degrees. The entry to advanced practice debate, the master's degree versus the DNP. And we've seen a big flare up of that in recent months. The length of time that should be required before nurses move to specialty practice. Should there be direct entry um, into specialties like critical care or even community care, um, a, a public health and so forth? Um, or should we have straight to, to from graduation to these areas? The amount of RN experience that should be required before beginning APN education, the debate over the DNP versus the PhD and the visions for what a PhD should be. And we can even swing it back to this vision of what a profession is and the autonomy that true professions are considered to have over in, in a classic sociological definition and, and, and how nursing in hospitals might never be considered in terms of its interaction with other professions and the degree to which um, it is the nurses hospitals. Um, this has spilled over into the enduring question of whether or not states should get involved in regulating nurse to patient ratios in hospitals. So the legacy of this the, the this struggle over definitions and people's conceptions of the profession in relation to a sociological definition of the professions has persisted with us. If we sort of step away from a sociological definition and the norms, I guess, if you will, you know, this the sort of normative view, an ideal is to have a profession that ticks all six boxes. And we look at people who study more dispassionately the way occupations have evolved in this country and eventually attained um, a status where there's title and practice protection. We see a history where occupations gradually become full-time occupations, formal training programs are established, uh, eventually universities take them in, there's the development of professional organizations, which eventually develop codes of ethics, and ultimately state licensure laws um, get put into effect. And this is, you know, and, and a profession is by definition therefore one that has um, you know, fairly high educational standards and fairly tight regulation of entry and exit. So this is sort of a, a more dispassionate view. And by, this, uh, by these kinds of um, criteria, nursing is there, has been there for a considerable period of time. Some of you might know about some of the more recent work in the professions, um, the sociology professions, which interestingly has sort of lost its status and cachet among sociologists. This is not a question that people are terribly interested in right now, but a classic book called The System of Professions written by Andrew Abbott, and I'm going to quote my, my colleagues and mentors, Linda Aiken and Doug Sloan, one of their articles a number of decades ago summarized Abbott's model by saying professional relations or what constitutes a profession, they stem not only from individual professions themselves, 
their interaction with other professions. And professions are constantly seeking to define themselves, grow, survive, and contest with other professions in an organizational environment that's continuously, continually, pardon me, subject to change due to outside social and technological events, uh, which is a tad of sociologies, if we put it into English, of different types relate to each other in the jungle, if we want to put it that way, of the clinical field, the survival of the fittest, and professions are born, grow, and die off in and change in response to their ability to defend or grow their territory in relation to society's needs. And this definition of a profession becomes much less one of are you in or are you out, but how do, does change um, shape a profession over time? And it is you know, sort of not a normative model of how we think of professions, but rather um, sort of a, a naturalistic description view of these, of, of the professions. So um, I'm just going to provide a definition that I won't read it in, in its entirety. Um, the uh, Sylvia Cruz and her husband at McGill University, along with another author, proposed a definition of, of professions suited to the health professions in particular by sort of synthesizing all those ideas that I just talked about. Um, the mastery of a complex body of knowledge and skills, um, the knowledge of some field of, of science or learning, and there's an art to it that's used in the service of others. There's um, a strong code of ethics, a commitment to competence, integrity, and morality, and the promotion of the public good. And then there's a social contract, like I spoke with in the beginning, that if we fulfill our end in a profession of the social society grants us the right to make some important decision about decisions about who comes into the profession, um, who practices it, and to evolve its role over time. And the accountability when it comes down to it um, is to those served and to society at large. And it's that definition that I sort of work with in my head when I think about where we're going in the future in nursing. But we cannot forget that we came from a tradition that for many, many years sort of had us hold ourselves up to a sociological model, if you will, and find ourselves short. So the question is, how do we shape the profession in the coming years to address current realities and nursing social mission for the future, if indeed we are accountable to the public? And I'm just briefly going to touch um, in my last minutes of, of what I'd like to talk about before we head into questions, some of the first editorial topics that I touched on in my, my first year at Nursing Outlook. Questions for the next year of the profession, um, enduring questions for the viability of clinical nursing careers, some unfinished business in figuring out nursing's role in health policy, and my most an editorial um, on discontent among nurse academics and where this might be going. And I think you're going to see some common themes in my comments um, in line with what we were discussing in the first half. So in the editorial, um, where I sort of compare where we are in the profession right now to being in a fast-moving river, not knowing, being facing change as the only inevitable, and not knowing exactly where we're going, but needing to adapt and adapt quickly, I put out some questions that I think um, are the subjects of many of the articles that we publish in Nursing Outlook, uh, which, of course, the, as the official journal of the Academy um, of Nursing, you know, we're trying to sort of be pace setters, I guess, in terms of the discourse about these very important questions. Um, you know, how at their core, 
Um, uh, the, uh, all of these articles and debates are around how can the profession and the discipline, if we want to sort of extend it into that territory, best serve the public's health? How should the profession be responding to social change? What is the profession's role destined to be given changing economics in healthcare? How do we deal with this enduring problem or question around career longevity and engagement, especially in the clinical end of our field? Uh, what are the consequences of economic trends for the practice of nursing and the delivery of healthcare? How should we be using nursing's voice in public policy? Because we might argue that as professionals who have a unique um, stance, I guess, in terms of viewing the delivery of healthcare services and the impact of health policy on individuals and communities' lives, you might argue that we have a special obligation to use our voice in meaningful and constructive ways. Um, how are we going to reckon with the past in terms of health equity questions for disadvantaged and minorities, minoritized populations? And how do we chart a future for delivering more equitable healthcare? Um, what do we do about the profound change um, in terms of the deluge of um, big data and so forth and the revolutions that are going on in science for the future of nursing practice and for the way we conduct nursing science. Um, in terms of shifts going on in society, in higher education, um, and in terms of the markets for various kinds of nursing um, education programs, how does that relate to our obligations in society? And what should we be taking in terms of international lessons, if you will, for what we might do best in the American side of the profession and what we what might be best export in terms of um, some of the best of what we have to offer in terms of the evolution of the profession. So I went from there to a second editorial about the viability of clinical careers in nursing, starting with a discussion of how COVID has changed so much um, to the point that it's become a cliche. And I know many leaders have gotten to the point that they said, you're not allowed to use the word COVID in any cannot continue to be an excuse and or an explanation for everything. And yet we know that COVID has changed everything for, for many of us for, for, for good. This was the big life-changing, um, uh, sea change, seismic moment, if you will. Um, and this editorial, I talked about what was similar about nursing, but what might potentially be different. And some of the elements that are different are, of course, limitations in our ability to produce nurses on a dime. We can use pretty, we can use um, nursing education strategies. We can develop curricula that can move pretty fast. But the bottom line is from the time somebody decides they'd like to be a nurse, depending on their prior preparation, we're talking about multiple years to put a new nurse uh, ready to begin practice um, in, the, in the workforce. Um, and there are, because of the size of the profession, the, the, the three point some million um, that Dr. Porter O'Grady was talking about, we're a large enough group of workers, there are concerns about compensation. Um, and there is also, I talk about this phenomenon that we see in a lot of gendered public service work, every, everything from library science to K-12 education, this idea of vocational awe, where are in, in society, in the public imagination, people believe that to be a librarian, to be a nurse, to be a K-12 teacher, we must have to be special superhuman individuals who are not motivated, not motivated by money and who are willing to put up with incredibly 
difficult working conditions because we love to do what we do so much and how vocational awe is potentially a big enemy as we think about the future um, because it turns our attention away from appropriate compensation and, a, and the working conditions that are driving some experienced nurses out of um, the, the very important um, mission that we're trying to fulfill. The the um, some of the questions that I put out there is needing to be addressed. Can we find a better balance between rewards and the systematic stresses of nursing work, mostly on the stresses side, perhaps? How much turnover can and should be expected moving forward? We don't want zero turnover. This work is not necessarily for everyone or for everyone at every phase of their lives. But I do believe very firmly that um, nursing has room for people who have good heads on their shoulders and want to serve the public um, in one capacity or another, and that there are many different angles that we can pursue. But should we be asking the question, how much turnover is desirable? How much can we prevent turnover? What does it really mean? And this big, big, big question of what will future demand for nurses look like as technology and the healthcare system change and what services are reimbursed and need to delivered, be delivered and how will costs of care affect demand moving forward? And this is this element in this ecological model of the professions about changing social forces, interactions with other groups of workers. And I would argue it's not just physicians and rehab professionals, um, that we need to talk about. We need to talk about practical and vocational nurses. We need to talk about unlicensed care attendants. We need to talk um, about a range of different occupations and professions and supply and demand. And then the big questions that flow out of this, how will nurses work? their roles and positions and settings change, what will change about nurses' relationships to colleagues and coworkers, and very importantly, from my side of the fence in, in uh, working in administration and leadership in a major school of nursing, and for many of you, it's the same situation, how will basic um, you know, pre-licensure and in-service education and continuing education for nurses change as a result of thinking uh, about how to deal with a changing market, changing um, attitude of nurses to um, what they consider important in a career and what they consider to be worth staying in a labor market versus exiting might be. The third of the four editorials was about nursing and health policy. And I talk a little bit about um, how the public as well as nurses do not necessarily embrace health policy. And my provocative idea is to some extent we may be might be unintentionally complicit in our healthcare system's failures because of our reluctance to question for fear that we might wind up questioning some aspects of the system that we like. Argue there's an urgent for nurses to raise some very fundamental questions and shape a future for healthcare delivery, as well as for the profession, and um, put forth that it's arguably critical to our social mission to do so. So I put out there, make some concrete suggestions, trying not to be a complaining person who me who categorizes people into villains, villains and victims and heroes, but to sort of encourage all of us to take responsibility for our personal roles um, and to think about each of us, perhaps to different extents, depending on our place and what as leadership, to really expand the frames and narratives that we think about healthcare delivery and healthcare policy in, and to understand what health policy 
really is. And at its heart, it's an attempt of, a go of governments to deal with failures of markets in healthcare, limitations in markets, not to crush market economies and the way those function in healthcare, but to deal with some of the issues that lead us to not providing safe and high quality care uh, to people and, and so forth. How public policy um, related to healthcare is made. It's, it's a very interesting thing to me that even though many nurses say, I don't want to go back to my high school um, sophomore year civics course and how a bill is made. I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill. Um, it's amazing how little connection there is between, in many of our imaginations, between what we see in the newspapers about what's going on in health policy and the decisions that are made um, in the voting booth, um, but also what the distinction is between elected and non-elected branches of government and where various stakeholders have an influence in public policy, how data and information and narratives affect what the what is possible in public policy and the true impact of health policy on the lives of, of patients um, and their families and of communities. So sort of an imploring to take another deeper look at what's going on in health policy and perhaps an incitement to least becoming better informed, if not to action itself. And my most recent editorial is, was on discontent among nurse academics. And I put forth that higher education's in crisis and nursing uh, academia in nursing or academic nursing along with it. And some of the concerns that we have are very much like our colleagues in literature and languages and physics and so forth, but some are very distinct. And we have some supply and demand issues that are affecting nurse educators in some special ways. And what I talk a lot about is the dissonance between expectations and realities in academic careers, that we have a lot of very talented people who decide to take their clinical careers and reshape them into working in academic nursing. And in an attempt, again, not to shape things as a victim and villain and hero narrative, but which everyone's Ability. Nurse educators have to understand their strengths and choices in the systems they work in. They have to support each other as colleagues, but they also need professional development to fulfill their roles, especially in a fast changing society and system, and they need support from leaders. And the metaphor that I use is about planting trees in whose shade we may not end up seeing than how we need to think about what the academic arm of the profession might need in order to recruit and retain more people to flourish in this particular area, because otherwise we may find ourselves in a situation where we can't produce the next generation of clinicians, leaders, and teachers. So just to summarize in the last minute or so before we swing into the next phase of today's session, some current issues in healthcare that I think are, you know, very much in need of discussion that need to shape our context as we steer the profession in the next years, the growing public mistrust and disillusionment, high costs, inconsistent outcomes, enormous profits in some corners of the system, um, and a sense of injustice among many, including among many people who are clinicians within the system. The proliferation of high cost and low impact services, especially as we look closer and closer, where is the value for money in many of the things we do? And for the last 30 years, from the first moment I set foot in a clinical setting to my time as doing active as, as a most the greatest activity of my, my scholarly and research time, the whole question of documentation burden that doesn't translate to quality of care, um, but also this unwillingness to question 
and the failures of the market, if you will, in various aspects of healthcare service delivery, and frankly, of health insurance for achieving the common good. And spinning it around, what are the current issues in nursing? I think we're seeing practice settings that are characterized by very heavy bureaucracy, very clunky use of information technology. There's so much promise there that hasn't been realized. But the big, big issue, limited attention to supporting professional practice models. There's mixed hope out there for supply and demand balance in various corners of the profession. We are seeing higher than ever interest in nursing among high school graduates, but at the same time, the second degree clientels um, are leveling off and we're not seeing as many people applying to come in after working in other fields as we once were. We are seeing a growth in people adding credentials and the standards required to hold various roles in the profession. That is, and I'm gonna be provocative here, potentially out of step with public needs and vulnerable to some of the economic forces out there. Um, we have seen what I might argue is a scholarly and research and prestige arms race, um, whereby we are encouraging nurse academics to be trying to generate more and different products at a time when there's so much. And when I talk about products, I talk about articles, I talk about grants and so forth without necessarily thinking of how realistic in all settings it is to be doing that and not thinking about the repercussions of some of those decisions and pressures for other areas of the profession might be. And I think there is right now very limited attention given everything that we're wading through um, to likely future societal and health system trends in terms of how it's how the supply and demand for nurses is going to be affected. So to conclude, possible keys to movement forward and I, I think we need to go back to the basics of who we are and what we do as a profession and where we've come from and revisiting the history of how we've gotten to where we are. A lot of victories here, but a lot of questions about whether some of the insecurities that we've had and the conflicts that have been generated, those fist fight provoking topics um, in the profession, whether all of our structures and those conflicts continue to serve us in the profession. And to think back to this whole question of how we treat each other within the profession um, and how we treat other groups um, and that human relations component as and the role that plays in supply and demand for nurses, but also in the congruence of how we're treating each other relative to the foundation of our profession as demonstrating respect for human beings. I think that's a place that we need to go. So. I'm going to stop there. Hopefully I won't have angered you excessively with those comments. Um, and I am so looking forward to the discussion. Well, thank you, Sean. Um, boy, you you did uh, take us close to the edge there and we, we love it. That's exactly what we wanted to do today because these are some important questions that we need to think about and know how to respond to. And I know from looking at the participant list, uh, I see some uh, of my nurse executive colleagues out there, and I would love to invite you to, uh, to bring your question live if you want, uh, so that we can actually uh, talk about these things that have been our holy grail as a chief nurse, to know what is your turnover? And, and here we are talking about, has that changed? Um, also, we we um, have a question already from one of our um, our participants from uh, Lynn Kuhl. And uh, we, um, Lynn, we're glad to have you ask your question live if you want to uh, 
to signal that to us, um, we'll, we could bring you live. But what she says, Sean, is I agree that you should not expect zero turnover. I'm relieved about that. Do current recruitment and enrollment practices in nursing education assist in creating a realistic view of nursing? Uh, and I know where she's coming from because we get students that think, oh, I'll do this night shift thing for a couple of weeks and then I know I can go to days and, and don't really think about some of those kind of uh, workforce uh, realities. And she also asked, is this, a, is this part of the struggle that we currently have to recruit and retain nurses? So Sean, what would you say about Lynn's question? I think that's a fabulous question. And I think there are people who are saying that the interest in the profession has perhaps never been stronger, but our issue right now is retention. It really is. Um, and, you know, it's so interesting. I think back to Marlene Kramer's and, uh, and, and Claudia Schmelenberg's work on reality shock and the very mixed emotions you get out of people when you talk about reality shock and whether our solution to reality shock should be immunizing nurses during their basic educations to, um, to resist an and to not be floored by the big difference in the professional practice models they're taught in school and what they encounter in the field. Um, I think it's a really interesting thing that right now we're starting to talk about maybe the field needs to change Maybe we need not only to equip people for realities of the workforce um, and, and practice environments and working in a system, in a healthcare system that's really, really complicated, but the system needs to be rethinking the way that it asks people to adapt to conditions in some elements, not necessarily shift work itself, but some of the other elements in terms of being in a position to use your best judgment in various um, areas to deal with some of the, um, you know, the extent to which there are norms that are created across organizations, again, where there's mutual respect is a foundation for everything, and that we might have the patience of everything, but also the respect for each other is at the core. So I think it's a fascinating, fascinating question. And I think it's one we haven't addressed enough as somebody who's very proud to have taught um, students in their graduating semester of nursing school for many, many, many years. Um, I also have to wonder whether in some ways I've been an enabler of not confronting the extent to which work design needs to be altered in order to retain in nursing. Oh, wow. So, so Sean, I think one of the things, and then I'm going to turn to Lynn, she's actually live here with us. I, I was going to say that, um, you know, one of the things I say often is our work has to change. And, and I think that's true. So Lynn, take it away. So another piece of this is some of the complaints we get about the next gen and the, 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 the Gen X or Gen Z. And and at the same time, we have to consider that's who's going to be our future. So therefore, how do we help pass that mantle, help them walk through this, how to prepare them? The other thing is, and I'm going to raise a holy topic, is the holistic enrollment kinds of things that we do are fabulous when we start through that road. But many, many schools cannot um, facilitate helping that learner get to a place academically where they can succeed, much less 
all your learners to get to the place where they're going to be successful. I spent a number of years in nursing education as a faculty member, taught in every level, but also spent a good time at, in as a nurse um, manager at a level one trauma. So I have that range of 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 uh, that two years of transition to practice kind of stuff. And it is a struggle because they're still, in many cases, still growing into who they are. They haven't figured out their identity as a nurse and the nursing identity. And I know that might be more of that sociology piece of it, but it's vital. Who am I and what I do? And so I think that journey combined with this, we need to educate to and throughout practice, walk with, and I'm going to use that cradle to grave kind of concept of being a nurse. Amazing, amazing comments. Agree with everything. Tick, 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 tick. Um, that that you're talking about. I mean, I think the whole business of generational. Um, differences and generational conflict is a really interesting one. And we could spend a whole hour talking about it. I think there are so many strengths that the current generations are bringing, including a willingness to question whether or not all of the things, all of the baggage that we've carried along over the years um, in, in the profession. And some of the baggage is heritage and is pride and is the values that we embrace that make us who we are as nurses. But to what extent is some of this leftover assumptions about the world, the way the world has to be that doesn't really serve us in providing high quality service and encouraging people to want to stay around. And it's so interesting that you mention, you know, sort of the increasing embracing of people from different walks of life, different learning styles, different life experiences and so forth. And as we in nursing with the strong traditional flavor that's, you know, some elements might've changed. We use Zoom, we use ExamSoft to deliver our exams. Um, our students are using electronic resources all the time. They carry devices and they relate to technology. But in some ways, many aspects of nursing education haven't changed. And are some of the things that wind up being psychological barriers to people that make them feel from nursing education and nursing practice, to what extent are those things really essential in us being able to do the things that you know, our profession is valued for, and to what extent can those be reshaped and rethought? So where is, where are we talking about a standard and a set of values that are non-negotiable? And where are we talking about traditions that exclude others? So, oh, well, what a, what a wonderful segue here. And I'm going to take us on. Thank you very much, Lynn. Great points. Um, because Walena Gould brings up some issues about what limitations have we put. So I'm going to ask Linda McCauley, our dean, to make a comment. And then Walena, we're headed to you. So um, one of the things I actually believe is that young people today aren't afraid of hard work. And I don't believe that they are unrealistic in terms of um, job quality and work-life balance. But what I think is missing is that we don't give them enough information about this professional transition. And they have a really hard time seeing how they're going to look and be different at year three. And you, look and be different at year five. And I think that's why so many of them choose to go back to school to become 
advanced practice providers because it's so clear, so concrete that it is career advancement and many, many health systems that career advancement is not so obvious. Certainly, you know, if you look at law, new law grads know how their first five years are gonna look, but yet they know that after that five years, it's a, they're a different place. Is it time that we really talk about and value what three years of clinical experience means to the work, to the workplace? What five years of clinical experience look like, and and really put the value so that they know what they're why they why they need to commit and stay and work for healthcare systems. That it's not just. Um, being recognized by their peers, but it's also being recognized by their value. And when you still translate it into how much you make per hour, you're, you're taking that professionalism layer out of it. So yeah. that's- And well, and I think it gets compounded too with the confusion that we on the service side create in our communities by calling orientation a residency. That's not a residency. That's an orientation to skills. And, and a true residency will, will offer much beyond that that gets at what Linda's talking about. Okay, so I wanna, I wanna shift us. We only have nine minutes left here. So I wanna move, uh, Walina, if you can um, be swift for us here and yeah. uh, talk through your, your important question on inclusion and uh, the size, what, what comprises our groups. Okay, so um, before I pose the question, I was so excited on Twitter to find out that Dr. Clark was going to be speaking today. I had to sign up. And the reason why I want to pose this question is because he had an open door policy and I wasn't even a student at the school where he was teaching at. So, and this was back in 2002 when I was a nurse anesthesia student. So I do appreciate you and I respect your work, Dr. Clark. So thank you for opening the door for me. And I wasn't even a student at the school. So thank you. But here's the question I wanted to pose. Since 1985, you talked about this a little bit earlier, um, newer models um, and fr frameworks have been shaped more so now by diverse faculty. Um, and with the change of nursing student cohorts who are from historically excluded groups, how will nursing intentionally be more proactive in hiring a diverse faculty promoting um, the faculty to, to more so in, in associate tenure positions and establish new bridge programs like associate degree to uh, DMP programs or associate degree to PhD programs. Um, how, how do you, what do you think um, along those lines of, of nursing when it comes to the future? I think I think we need to be intentional about our efforts to recruit people from, and I think we. I'm actually proud. But we're, the the work is not done yet. I'm proud of the fact that that among the health professions, you know, beyond gender, nursing has not done a terrible job. But we could do so much better. We could go so much further in terms of the degree of inclusion. You know, the the degree to which we promote inclusion. Um, I you you raise some really really important points. The representation of of, of, of faculty from minoritized groups in schools of nursing, I think is incredibly important. I think in order to get faculty, to, to get nurses thinking about faculty uh, um, careers as a possible direction for themselves, I think we need to go back to 
the clinical career end and what makes a nursing career desirable or not desirable. And we need to think about what life in academia looks like. And we need to think about building those shady trees, I guess. And I think it's even more important if, we, if we're hoping to be inclusive, to pay attention to whether workplaces are truly inclusive, whether they are nurturing, whether they're encouraging people um, by showing that their, their differences are embraced, valued, essential to us being stronger, rather than making them feel as if um, they have to overcome a mountain of forces within the profession um, and, and their workplaces you know, and their, their, their career ladders in order to get through. So I, I, I just, I can't agree more. I would say that in many ways, the, the intentionality is so important and then add to the intentionality that we, if we pay attention to some of these ingredients that are related to uh, the sustainability of working clinically, of working as a faculty member, of pursuing some of the more rigorous and challenging um, specialties within the profession, anesthesia, um, that we will we will benefit enormously because people from minoritized groups, historically minoritized groups face those barriers and more, you know, so it, it puts us on the route. We need to look after people in general and their, their, their motivations and their success line, and then also pay specific attention to how we go after folks and, and make sure that they feel supported as they come through our systems. Thank you so okay. much. Thank you very much, Walina. And uh, there's just some incredible points in this chat and we will, we will certainly be collecting those and looking at it, but I want to make two more points before I hand it over to Linda. Uh, one is the fact that the misuse of technology in the healthcare setting is real confusing to, to some nurses. You know, in a professional class, here we move them into, into hospitals and clinics, and we say, here's where you, you enter your time. Vicki Hertzberg points out, we make them punch a time clock. Okay, so how do we relate that to misuse of technology or maybe a different use of technology. And then we go as far as saying that Jackie McDonald makes a point about AI and how this, some nurses perceive that we're taking away nursing jobs just because we have um, implemented some technology that does do, it augments what the nurse does by doing some of the jobs that were previously only done by the nurse. And so I think those are real, real important issues along with um, the, the what happened to the MSN question uh, from uh, Penny Beatty. And so I think all of those are good, but Sean, if you would just take a, a, a short swat at the technology, and then we're going to have to turn it over to Dean McCauley to close this up. Right. Um, I, I think the, the really important points, two points to mention are, you know, technology is not a panacea and can introduce other issues that we haven't even thought through in terms of what work life feels like and in terms of the messages we send about what's really valued um, and, and what people do and it can shift things. The other point that I want to jump in, though, with is that both nurses thinking that technology is not, and AI are not going to change their work lives because we are so much a face to face driven interaction driven profession this very wrong. We are a knowledge-driven profession, but we are seeing very rapidly um, across many, many different professions and healthcare is no exception that there is in, there are risks, but there's so much promise in terms of the creative things that we could do with AI would take away some of the cognitive overload um, and help us deliver better services and that we could do even better tailoring of, of, of care if we used technology appropriately. Very, very true. Thank you for those comments. And Sean, what a fabulous job. So Linda, take it away. 
Thank you, Sean, and thank you, Sharon. And, you know, we know we're doing something that um, is really good and really needed when the hour flies by so fast that we don't have enough time for all the questions. But we're going to digest all the questions and use them for follow-up for future webinar um, series so we can make deeper dives in some of these areas. Sean and Sharon and the audience, your, your engagement was fantastic today. It's people like you who will ensure that we make positive changes and respond to the needs of the healthcare system as a whole. And um, I, I thank you for sharing your voice with us today. So we're gonna take a holiday break and in January on the 16th at 1 p.m. from noon to 1 p.m., we are very pleased to announce that Olga Yakuscheva, who is the professor, is a professor in the Department of Health Management and Policy at the University of Michigan School of Public Health and chair of the faculty of the Department of Systems Population and Leadership at the University of Michigan School of Nursing is going to be our guest. Just last month, she was inducted as an honorary member of the Academy of Nursing. And the reason that she is being recognized is because of the voice that she is developing and disseminating in terms of economic issues around the nursing profession. Specifically, she's focused most, a lot of her recent scholarship on value-informed nursing practice. And we say that all the time. What's your value proposition? What's the value of nursing practice? And she and her colleagues are highly are highlighting the need to keep the focus on outcomes in healthcare, but do so with closer accounting on the resources that are required and the cost involved in achieving those outcomes. It's not as, as Sharon mentioned about internships versus residencies. These are, these are very expensive systems that healthcare, that healthcare sets up to uh, develop the practice, the professionalism of the nurses that they hire. And Olga's saying, let's not just look at the outcomes, but let's look at what it costs to get our nursing profession doing the type of outcome-driven care that um, they need to do. So um, we're excited to have this conversation with her in uh, January. I hope you'll join us again, add your voice, join in in the questions. The um, You can register right now for the January session. And so encourage your colleagues and other leaders to attend as well. Find out why everyone's talking about Olga's work and why it's so valuable to our profession. And uh, the more people that are involved in these discussions, the greater impact we're gonna have. So again, Sean, thank you so much for being with us today. And thanks to all of our audience for being here today. And we'll see you next time.